Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you. Uh, if you don't know me or you forgot my name or something, my name's Jesse. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. I haven't been up here for the past couple of weeks, so maybe you did forget me, uh, but I'm back. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're continuing our study, uh, our summer study. Through this book, we're talking about wisdom. We've called this series Better because wisdom in the Bible, the word, uh, Hebrew word for wisdom is the word hokma. It means uh, to get better at life. Okay, hokma has to do with knowledge, uh, not just intellectual knowledge, but knowledge applied. Okay, so we talked about this in the first sermon in this series, uh, but you could really translate hokma as skill. Okay, the skill of living. Okay, so some things might not be necessarily right or wrong. You could do something that is amoral, okay? It might not actually be a sinful thing to do, and yet it can still be foolish. It can lead you down a path you don't want to go. So we're talking about uh, wisdom. We're talking about getting better at life. And we talked about a few things. We talked about getting better at friendship and better at speech, the words that we say. We talked about getting better at trusting God. Today we're talking about something else, and you'll see when we get to the verse. So Proverbs, turn to chapter 20, we'll go to verse 3, and this, this proverb might not be as familiar as some of the other ones that we've gone over recently, uh, but you'll get what it's talking about when you get there. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. But every fool will be quarreling. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, and we um, come to a simple text in a lot of ways. Um, but a text that is so profound and so challenging. And God, I know that for a lot of us, we have strife in our lives. We have conflict with people. We have difficult relationships. And we've heard sermons on reconciliation and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And yet, the problems remain. The difficulties persist. We don't always know what to do or if we have the strength and the will to do it. So God, I pray that as we come to your word this afternoon, that you would help us not just to understand what your word is saying, but I pray that you would help us to also live in accordance with it, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word. God, we know that we need your help for this. So we ask even beforehand, God, that your spirit would work in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that whatever we glean from your word right now in this time. I pray, Father, that we would take it, God, and do something with it tomorrow or even after church today. God, thank you. We entrust this time to you. Again, we ask for your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Sound familiar? The last time I preached, that was the text that I preached on. We talked about friendship. A friend loves at all times. The second half of that proverb says, though, a brother is born for adversity. And yet, and yet, tell me 
if this kind of story sounds at all familiar, uh, the story might sound actually familiar. I told it like way back in Matthew. So if you were around back then, I'm double dipping, but most of you weren't here. Anyway, the story goes, Sheldon and Buzz Goldstein were two brothers, 85 and 80 years old at the time of the story. No other siblings. Their parents had passed away. Sheldon's wife had died. But the thing is, Buzz didn't even know that Sheldon's wife had died until way later, years later maybe. And you want to know why? It's because they didn't talk anymore. Now, you might think it had to do with the distance between them. Sheldon, he lived down in sunny Florida, and Buzz lived in Canada, a great nation. But it wasn't the physical distance that kept them apart. If you asked Sheldon, he'd probably say it was because of Buzz. That one time, Buzz made him stay in the attic when he came to visit. But if you asked Buzz, he would say, it's actually Sheldon. The only reason I made him stay in the attic was because he made me stay in the basement. And they'd bring up all these different things, the, the rude words that were said to each other's spouses, the, the touchy subjects that were brought up insensitive, uh, insensitively. Or maybe they'd say that the final straw was when mom died and the older brother was being completely unreasonable when it came to the funeral arrangements. That was 20 years before the story. So basically for 20 years, these two brothers had almost zero relationship. Now, Buzz's son, who wrote the story, Jonathan, he decided he had to do something about it. Jonathan watched his father and his uncle, and he said, you know what, dad is 80, and Uncle Sheldon is 85. There's not a lot of time left. They're going to die like this. And Buzz would say stuff like, you know, I used to adore my brother. I looked up to him. I was, you know, the little brother. He was my big brother, five years older. I wanted to be just like him at one point. But now we're beyond that. And really, we're beyond anger. All that's left is apathy, which is really nothing at all. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. The proverb states that a brother's purpose, existence, is to be there for the brother or the sister, to be there for the family when the hardest times come. That's what a brother is supposed to be. But we all know that's not how it always is. The story of Buzz and Sheldon could be a billion different stories. It could be your story. It could be your parents' story. Let's be real. And sometimes, not just with brothers and siblings, sometimes the people that are closest to us, even closer, our spouses or our best friends, they are the people that hurt us the most in the end, or we hurt them the most, or usually it's both. People who vowed to love each other for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. Now, when you mention the other person's name, it causes them to go into a rage. They used to love this person. The child a new parent held with wonder decades ago, the last time they talked, she said, I hate you, I never want to talk to you again. How do you go from there to there? Best friends become enemies, strangers, thorns in your side, people you hate seeing. The church that you used to love, you used to invite all your friends to it. You say, oh, I love our church. Come on out. Now you hope that you never see them in Kroger. Or you like look for their cars, look for stickers. You're like, I think I'll shop somewhere else. And of course, it's not always that extreme. You find that your opinions don't really always neatly line up with the kind citizens of Facebook. So you get in arguments because people are wrong all the time. It's on your feed. 
Or you have a coworker that irritates everyone in the office, but unfortunately for you, he sits right next to you. Maybe someone in this room said something to you in the wrong way one time, and now you want to sit on the opposite side of the church. Just theoretical. Strife is a part of life. A little rhyme for you guys. That's why I get paid the big bucks around here. Strife is a part of life. We're talking about strife. Getting better at dealing with conflict. And the thing is, part of me kind of dreaded teaching this one, but I knew we needed to teach it because this book knows that this is such a big part of life. If you do a search of the word strife in Proverbs, it shows up 14 separate times. It talks about strife almost more than it talks about anything else topically. See, Proverbs is not pie-in-the-sky idealism. Oh, just be a good friend. It's so easy. Just be a good husband. Be a good wife. Oh, just trust God. I mean, that's part of it. But this book knows that we need uh, wisdom, not just in this world that God created originally, but also in this world that Adam plunged into sin and death and ruin. It's the same world. In this world, things don't always go right. In fact, in this world, things are oftentimes difficult. And so the word strife shows up more than a dozen times in these 31 chapters. God knows relationships, family ones, marriage, parenting, friendship, co-working, ship, whatever, having neighbors, etc. God knows that they are difficult, and they are often the source of the most stress in our lives. And so he has provided help for us. And so as we get into this, maybe you have someone or some relationship that's popping into your mind right away. But as we get into this, here's the thing. What if, what if our relationships could actually be better? What if you could deal with your differences with people better? What if whatever conflict that's simmering on the back burner of your mind right now could be better? Because the truth is it can. Now, it's not easy. In fact, it might be one of the hardest things, but it can. That's what wisdom is for. So let's get into it. Three points from this verse mostly, but we're going to uh, bring in some other verses as well. But this verse is where we're going to kind of draw the, the main outline from. First, the glory of peace. Second, the reality of conflict. And third, the foolishness of quarreling. Let's get into it. First, the glory of peace. The glory of peace. See, there are always reasons. In any conflict, there are always reasons why strife happens. There are explanations, justifications, two sides to every story. And we'll get more into this as the points unfold. But it's important to start where the proverb itself starts, with the glory of peace. Look at the text. Okay, Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. It's not just nice. Like, would be nice if we had some peace. It's not even just a good thing. Biblically speaking, it's an honor. It's an honor. When I was in college, I majored in English literature. Not the smartest move if you want to make a living and, you know, have a job and stuff. Um, but it worked out because I got this sermon illustration out of it. The English major uh, at our college, it required two full classes on just Shakespeare. 
Okay, so we had to read pretty much, uh, I don't think we read all of them, but we read like 32 plays. Uh, and the funny thing is, we read all of like the obscure ones and stuff, and I only remember like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, like the ones that everyone knows. Um, but this story, uh, this illustration that I'm going to bring up comes from Romeo and Juliet, so maybe you know it too. You don't have to have an English literature degree to know this story. But you know Romeo, you know Juliet, you know they have a tragic, star-crossed love story. Um, but the reason why it's so tragic isn't just because they died uh, at the end. Spoiler alert, hopefully you guys knew that. Um, they die at the end. Um, but the reason why their whole romance is so tension-filled and dramatic is because they are from two families that hate each other. Okay, the Capulets and the Montagues. I honestly don't even remember which one is which at this point. But what, they're from these families, okay, and these families hate each other. And you find out about this viscerally in the beginning when people from each family run into each other. If you've seen the movie version, the most recent one, they run into each other at a gas station. Uh, and they start arguing about disrespect, okay? So one of the people asks the other people on the other side, do you bite your thumb at us, sir? And they start going back and forth. I do bite my thumb at you, sir. What do you think? And he's like, sir, you really bite your thumb at me? And it seems so weird because Shakespeare to us seems so formal. These and thous and sirs and what are they even talking about? But I went to school so I could understand and translate this old English for us. It's not even old English, but this old modern English. And what's going on was one of the people was giving the others an offensive gesture. You could think about it like maybe the middle finger or something like that today. It's rude. It's coarse. It's the kind of thing you do to insult someone to start a fight. So one of the guys bites his thumb at the other group. They start biting their thumbs at each other. They start arguing. And you see this kind of stuff today. Uh, someone says something, a snide remark, and the other person says, what did you say? Okay, it's to escalate the conflict, to instigate, to start it. I mean, you heard what they said. You have ears that work. You say that because it's about respect. And this is the profound thing that Proverbs is getting at. And we might miss it if we don't think about honor, because honor isn't really a part of kind of 21st century American, you know, like ideology or discourse. But here's the thing about honor, okay? People enter into strife or engage in arguments or start beef, and I'm not talking about the cows, but you get what I'm saying, because of disrespect and dishonor. What he did wronged me. What she said offended me. It damaged my reputation. It cost me something. Therefore, if I'm to be someone with self-respect, then I must say something. I have to retaliate. I have to defend myself, defend my honor. I mean, who cares if someone bites their thumb at you? Okay, that gesture doesn't physically affect you at all. It's about the respect. So all that to say, understand that this single proverb is flipping worldly wisdom on its head. It's saying something incredibly profound. The natural tendency for us is to get defensive, to fight fire with fire, to protect our honor. But what the Bible is actually saying in this one verse is actually what's really honorable is to not get into it. Do you see that? Lady Wisdom says, no, actually to avoid, to keep aloof from strife is true honor. Think about that. It's a complete paradigm shift. Think about the last time you got in an argument with somebody and you just felt like you had to say something. Why? Why did you have to say something? See, someone insults us. 
instead of unsheathing our tongues to cut them down with cruelty, the Bible says it's actually better if you can just laugh it off and let it go. Someone treats you as beneath them. Uh, They look down upon you. They say something that's really rude and offensive to you. The Bible says, don't take it personal. And this is a defeat. I mean, this is not a defeat, excuse me. This is not a humiliation. This is actually honor. See, honor is an important thing in the Bible. Proverbs 3.35 says, The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Lady Wisdom says in Proverbs 8.18, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. Proverbs 21.21 says, Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. And Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And the reason why I make such a big deal out of this, why we spend so much time on this, an entire point, is because it's in the verse, first of all. But secondly, because I think a lot of times we are tempted to think that conflict is better than avoiding it. It was the better option. I had to do it. If there is any temptation to think that strife is better than peace, God himself says otherwise. See, if you think, I can't let them get away with it, I'm not going to let this go, I can't live with it, understand right off the bat that you're taking a step in the wrong direction. You're heading toward disgrace and folly. You're heading away from life and peace and joy. You're heading away from God. Now, there's more to this even. In fact, this verse in Hebrew is actually one of those verses where it's a lot more layered than in English for whatever reason. It's just English. We couldn't capture everything that's in this verse. In Hebrew, the word for honor here is actually the word kavod. K-O-V-O-D. I guess you could write it down if you wanted to think about it in English transliteration, but kavod. And kavod means, literally, it means heavy or weighty. And if you've been around Zoe long enough, you know that kavod actually is the Hebrew word that's most often translated as what? As glory. God's glory, God's kavod. Uh, And this is why I called the first point uh, the glory of peace. That's why I gave it this title. Because what the text is actually saying is it is glorious to stay away from conflict. And this needs to be said. Again, this needs a whole point. We need to understand that the word of God exalts the absence of strife as something that's filled with glory. It's a word used for God himself. It's something that matters. It's something that's weighty, that's heavy, that will last, that's worth it. And this proverb, if anything, that you take away from this first half, this proverb is supposed to cut away the legs, to cut off the legs of an oh well attitude. Because I think a lot of us know You know, we should deal with this problem in my life. I know I got to stop fighting with this person. I know I should stop doing this. I know I need to reconcile with so-and-so. But then we think, oh, well, you know, we're all going to die soon. We'll reconcile in heaven. Oh, well, we just don't get along that well. Oh, well, if I lose this friendship, I'll make a new friend. Oh, well, you know, I have another brother. That's just what we do. There's way too much oh well that I've seen around me in the world and in the church. And the sad thing is there's so much oh well that I've seen in my own life. So reading this proverb, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Because this proverb says it's not oh well. 
This is the glorious, honorable path. The other way is folly and foolishness. See, if the Bible is the true, inspired, and errant word of God, and it says that it is glorious to avoid strife, we should be taking that more seriously, right? We should be seeking peace and pursuing it as the psalm goes. So think about it. Where does your life need peace? A relationship that needs reconciliation? Think about the same old arguments you keep getting in with your husband or your wife or your kids or your coworkers or neighbors. See, a lot of us, were leaving a lot of glory on the table. That's just the truth. A lot of glory is left on the table in our lives. This is where our foolishness is primarily displayed for a lot of us. Because we watch our words. We don't cuss. We try not to gossip. We know that lying is bad. We try to have a few good friends. We're pretty good with our money. We try to be intentional in our parenting. We try to live in the fear of the Lord. Except... For some reason, we keep getting into fights with people all the time. You look in the rearview mirror of your life, and there are so many burned bridges everywhere you go. Every bridge you've crossed, you've burned. We're leaving a lot of glory on the table. And we're leaving a lot of joy, too. Proverbs 12, 20. I'm going to move this back. Proverbs 12, 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Those who plan peace have joy. Don't you want that? So let's just close in prayer right now and go reconcile with some people right now. Let's just close in prayer. Just stop fighting. Avoid it. No, we know that there's more to it. We know that there's more to it. We can't just stop it right now. Even if it is somewhat simple, it's not that simple. If you're someone especially who really pays attention to what the Bible is saying and takes it very seriously, you probably have some questions like, if you're like me, I had a lot of questions, like, what if they started it? Or what if what they did was so wrong, I got to call them out? What about all the examples in the Bible where people fought when David killed Goliath, or Paul rebuked Peter, or where Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the tables? Second point. The first point, the glory of peace. You got to understand that peace is an ideal we should strive for. But second, the reality of conflict. See, there are always reasons. There are always reasons. Why strife happens, explanations, justifications, two sides to every story. And sometimes, sometimes there are valid reasons. And even if the reasons aren't always valid, the reality is conflict seems to be unavoidable either way in this world. In fact, if you look at the text, the second half, But every fool will be quarreling, will be. As long as there are fools in this world, there will be strife and conflict and quarreling. There are always going to be people who want to pick a fight or keep the fight going. But think deeper now. Why are there fools? What is the root of all of this? Where does conflict ultimately come from? If you look through the scriptures, it's actually not that simple. It's a little complex. It's layered. First, strife comes from sin. We see that in the Proverbs. If you just look at the context of this book, if you do a search on strife, if you look at the other 13 examples, the border of the puzzle actually comes together pretty quick. Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 13, 10, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Proverbs 15, 18, 
A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And then Proverbs 28, 25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Now, I read that fast. You might not have caught them all, but here's what those Proverbs were saying. Strife comes from hatred, insolence, anger, and greed, just to name a few. Sum it up, strife comes from sin. And my pastor threw the filter of foolishness, but ultimately, strife comes from sinful hearts. And this is a problem because no one person or people group has a monopoly on sin. As long as there is sin in this world, there is going to be strife. Second, strife comes from not just sin, but from differences that we have. If you go beyond the Proverbs, if you search the Old Testament, in fact, turn with me to Genesis 11, toward the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 11. <clears throat> this is the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel. Not long after the flood, before Abraham, before Israel. So it's early on in the history, the story of the Bible. Children learn about this story, and you might have learned about this as a kid too, when God kind of created all the different languages that people have today. Uh, and that is part of it, but the story is actually way more layered. Verse 1, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so you get what's happening here. They want to build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. They're joining forces, they're uniting, which on the surface seems kind of positive. We, all, we always like teamwork and getting together as a good thing. But notice, what was the goal, the stated goal? Let us make a name for ourselves. Ourselves, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. You heard it from God's own mouth. There is power in unity. There is strength in numbers. When everyone's on the same page, and you know this from work, when everyone's on the same page, productivity skyrockets. You might, not, you might know this from school or, or other things too, but the people were one. The people were one. The people had one language. They understood each other. Verse 7, come, let us go down. This is God speaking. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. See, what we see here is God's judgment and God's mercy together. The judgment was God wrecking their plans, confusing the languages, dispersing them, exactly what they didn't want, but it's also mercy. And you say, how is it mercy? Because God knows the heart of man. There is power and unity. There is strength in numbers. When we're all on the same page, productivity skyrockets. This applies both to good and to evil. When sinful people come together on the same page, 
kind of this unholy Voltron, as it were, their capacity for evil is exponentially increased. You know this from any movie where the heroes team up. They are stronger together than they are apart. But what happens when the villains team up? By dividing us, God put a glass ceiling in place to keep us from ever reaching our full sinful potential. Now, back to Proverbs verse 20. I showed you this. I wanted to bring this up because we have to understand there's a sense in which the divisions that arise because of our differences, that come from our misunderstandings, that come from distance between us, that's built into this world because of God. You could almost say that it's not a bug, it's a feature. We're supposed to not be able to get together as humanity. That's just part of being in this world post-Tower of Babel. It's judgment, but it's also mercy. We're just different people. And you look at the New Testament, and the New Testament understands this too. Even in the church, where we are brought together as one, there are different members. Some people are mouths, some people are noses, some people are ears. I mean, we understand this. People have different gifts, different temperaments. Some are extroverted, some are introverted. We are different, and this leads to division and conflict. So strife comes from sin. Strife comes from differences. And it also comes from necessity. And before I explain this to you, let me share with you a little story, the kind of children's storybook version. Once upon a time, there was a monk. He was a very serious guy. He was very serious about God. In fact, he was more serious about God than most of the monks or even most people who have ever lived. He would confess his sins for hours a day. He would pray so much that his knees were bleeding from the cold, hard floor. He would fast until his health started to suffer. He would do this all the time. He was trying to earn his salvation. He was trying to be righteous before God. But as time went on, he realized that it wasn't working out. He just couldn't do it. And then he stumbled upon a verse in the Bible, Romans 1, 17. Really 16 and 17, but two verses. But verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A verse he had read many times as a monk and as a professor of theology, but this time it clicked. And so this monk nailed his new theology, his new beliefs, onto the door of All Saints Church, and voila, the Protestant Reformation happened. Now, that was a very big oversimplification of what actually happened. Okay, that's not exactly how all the details took place. But I bring this up, this Wikipedia version of the story of Martin Luther and the Reformation. Why? To get at something the Bible itself gets at. Sometimes people are wrong and they oppose God. They sin or they have heretical beliefs. And sometimes you need to take a stand for those things. Am I right? Right. Amen. Yes. Are we not from John MacArthur's church? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. I want to show you this because I never noticed this until like two weeks ago when Eric told me. 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. This is in the, the portion of scripture right before Paul talks about communion. We read this every Monday. Uh, Monday, First Sunday of the month. I don't know what's going on. I got kind of messed up with this. First Sunday of the month, we read 
1 Corinthians 11. But before he talks about the instructions for communion, what to do when you come together, he says, I don't commend you guys because when you do come together, it's for the worse. Then he goes on, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. But then he says, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The context is division in the Corinthian church. Division was bad. Obviously, Paul says that it is evil, but he says right here that it is sometimes a necessary evil. Paul is saying there must be factions. Why? To show who is real and who isn't. There is such a thing as heresy. There is such a thing as false teaching. There is such a thing as evil and sin. Genuine wrong. And sometimes you have to divide. Sometimes you have to get away. Sometimes you have to nail your beliefs on the door of the church. Sometimes you have to call something out. See, sometimes we think that peace is so glorious that we should just never do anything that might eventually lead to conflict. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that you should never do anything that might lead to conflict. It just says that conflict is bad. So there's a tension here. I mean, if you're listening to what I'm saying, it almost sounds like I'm like contradicting myself. The Bible does say that conflict is sometimes necessary because of sin and differences and and error and all those things. But the Bible also says that strife is foolish and it doesn't lead anywhere good. Both are true. So what do we do? Well, I think to help us, we should go back to the original story. I'm going to tell you how the story goes throughout the sermon, just to give something concrete, okay? I think Buzz and Sheldon can kind of put some flesh and bones to kind of an abstract idea. But I want to go back to these brothers, because the truth of the matter is they did wrong each other. They weren't mad for no reason. Okay, in fact, they were all about justice. Okay, tit-for-tat accounting. That's what Jonathan said. You made me stay in the attic, I'm going to make you stay in the basement. You said something mean to me this time, I'm going to say something mean to you next time. An eye for an eye. But Jonathan, as he was talking to his dad, and he dug deeper into what was eating at him, he realized that it went beyond this. And this is where I think it's helpful. It went way back to when they were kids when their parents' marriage was falling apart, when Buzz and Sheldon's mother actually left their father. This is his grandparents. She left. And what started this conflict that uh, dragged on for years was that even when they were kids, what happened was mom took only one of the brothers with her and left the other one at home with the abusive father. See, Sheldon's mother decided to only take Sheldon, the oldest, and she left Buzz at home. Now, they all ended up living together again. Uh, don't remember all the details, but things worked out in a way. But this moment of perceived favoritism, where it wasn't really their fault, it was their parents' sin and their struggles and their conflict that bled out into the kids' lives, where they took one and they left the other, where the line was drawn between them. And that choice planted the seeds of strife that would bloom and grow decades later. It was always about, well, how come you got treated this way? How come you got this? It's not fair. And here's what we have to understand. As I said twice, there are always reasons. See, no one wants to be a full outright that I talked to, and yet everyone has difficult relationships. Everyone experiences strife, even though we don't want them. 
And why is that? Because undergirding every single instance of strife in our lives is some kind of justification. They wronged me in some way. You're going to let them get away with it? I need to keep this conflict going because of what they did. I mean, even the little things, right? It was this old comic strip I saw where the wife uh, is waiting for her husband in the doorway. She says, are you going to come to bed soon? And he says, hold on, honey. I got to reply to this one other person who was wrong on the internet. I mean, that's just how it is. You see something wrong, you got to say something. Every person I know who is embroiled in conflict always has a reason. And this leads to the third point. The third point. The truth of Proverbs 20, verse 3, is that quarreling is always foolish no matter how you cut it. Okay? Quarreling is always foolish no matter how you cut it. The third point is the folly of quarreling. So we have the glory of peace. We have the reality of conflict. The folly of quarreling. See, there are always reasons, even legitimate ones. Sometimes you have to get away or take a stand or say something that the other person might perceive as an attack or an offense. Sometimes you need to separate. However, however, this doesn't mean you need to stoke the fires of strife. If you read the text again, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Every fool. The word for quarreling is the word galah. I might not be saying that right. My Hebrew pronunciation isn't the best, but galah. And if you study it, it has this idea of breaking out, okay, of like laying bare or disclosing. It's like you felt like you had something in you that you had to let go. Really, it's a concept that has to do more with self-control than with fighting, if that makes sense. It's feeling like you have to say whatever it is you want to say. It feels like you need to inject your opinion. You need to correct them in this moment. It's feeling like I need to win or have the last word. It's keeping the conflict going. They start walking away and you say, hey, wait a minute. How about this? Every person I know whose life is characterized by strife, they're characterized by galah. Every single thing they feel and think Every conviction, every opinion must be shared and dumped on these other people. It has to. And Proverbs 20 verse 3 is saying that this is what fools do. Just because you feel it doesn't mean you have to say it. And it goes beyond this, okay? Think about it like this. When you see kids fighting over a toy, when you see your own kids or like other people's kids fighting over a toy or something, and it escalates into World War III, and you come in and you see them crying and hitting each other and stuff, and you ask them what happened, and usually it's like a small thing, right? But what's the justification for why like eight-year-old Bobby beat up, you know, his two-year-old sister? It's because she started it. She started it. He started it, she started it, the other person started it. I didn't even want to get into conflict, but they started it with me. That's why I retaliated. I want to show you something else in this text, in the beginning of this verse. Remember I said there's more in the Hebrew. It says it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. Now, anyone who's aloof is someone where you're talking to them and they're kind of like not paying attention, maybe like avoiding, but that's not actually the full kind of... uh concept that's being communicated here in the Hebrew. The word uh, for keep aloof is actually just one word, and it's the word sabeth, sabeth, which is 
connected to or related to or a variation of the word Sabbath. It's connected in the language, rest. I mean, what was the Sabbath? Okay, it was one day out of the week where you stopped working. You ceased from working. You would take a break. What the text is saying really, literally, is it is a glory to cease from strife, to take a Sabbath from it. Even if he started it or she started it, get this, you, if you're wise, will end it. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to keep it going. You can cease. And this is so important because of what's at stake. Turn with me real quick to 1 Kings verse 3 or chapter 3. It's back in the Bible. 1 Kings 3. <clears throat> it's right after 1 and 2 Samuel. I want to show you this because Solomon was the author of Proverbs, the wisest man who had ever lived up to that point. And this story is about him. Right after he prayed for wisdom and God granted him supernatural wisdom, he demonstrates his wisdom, and we have a story. And I want to read this story to you, starting in verse 16. 1 Kings 3.16. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. Verse 22. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. It says, she said, she said. Verse 23, then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. Verse 24, and the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, You've heard the story before. If you haven't, I trust that you kind of understood what was going on. I read the whole thing. The dilemma is terrible. Okay, a woman's baby passed away in infancy. She stole the baby, presumably, from another woman and took that baby, the alive baby, for herself and gave this woman who also just had a baby, a dead baby. There's theft. There's death. It's a tragic story. There's lying, maybe. How are you supposed to tell the two apart? But Solomon understood that you can't fake instinct. The woman who wanted the child alive, even if she couldn't have him, was the true mother. Now, what do you think about that? Because for me, honestly, I always felt like this story was unrealistic. Like, I felt like it was cool. 
Um, and I, I do believe that this Bible, right, that the Bible is true, right, that it's inspired. But just something about this story in particular just seemed so, like, not realistic to me because I was like, why would a woman say that? If she wanted that child for herself, why would she say, just go ahead, cut it in two? Who wants to let a baby get cut in two? What kind of twisted person? It didn't seem like this was real life. I never really got it until I realized that this is what we as people do all the time. We literally do this in all these different ways. Maybe not with a baby, but in all these different ways. What am I saying? Well, let me give you an example that I think is applicable to all of us because we're here in church. Why do so many churches split? Right down the middle. Might as well ask Solomon for a sword. He'll just cut people right down that dividing line, whatever it might be. I've heard of things like, the color of the carpet of the new building, right? You, I mean, that's the proverbial, like, crazy one, but it happens. I know of churches where they fought over cloth diapers versus disposable diapers, and I'm sure that there's a good reason behind it. There's always a good reason, right? With the carpet, it's probably one was more expensive than the other. It was like, you're not being a good steward, or how come you want that cool color? Are we trying to be a hip, seeker, sensitive church now? It always gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it goes on and on and on. And what happens is the churches actually do split. See, they say, go ahead, cut it in two. If I'm not going to get my way, then might as well end the thing. How many times does that happen? Thousands of times. All It could happen in our future. Who knows? Every church goes through something. It's the homeschoolers versus the private schoolers versus the public schoolers. Sometimes it's two-on-one. This happens in every church. It's the old people versus the young people, the people who were here first versus the people who just came. Churches split right down the middle. It's not just churches, it's marriages. And sometimes marriages end, you know, for legitimate reasons. You could say there's crazy adultery or something like that, but a lot of times... In church, when you read about these stories or you talk to people as a pastor, it's like, it just started with something small. We got in this little argument and something to do with, you know, he like loaded the dishwasher the wrong way and it just spiraled out of control and now we can't stand each other. I mean, it did grow. The feelings are bad and they're real. But you got to understand that we let these things that are comparatively little cut the baby in half. You see what I'm saying? Friendships take decades to build. And they end over one disagreement. Solomon understood human nature at a really deep level. That's what I understood finally after reading this story many times. We will throw the baby out with the bathwater, sometimes literally because of how right we think we are and how wrong we think they are. If we can't have it, no one can. Cut it in half. And yet Solomon also knew that the true mother would value the baby more than being right. And there you go. See, the issue here, you might say, how do I navigate this? How do I know when to speak up? How do I know when to take a stand? How do I know when to nail my theses on the door? Please don't do it on this door. Okay, we rent this building. Okay, if you want to talk to us, email Eric. But how do I know when to do it? How do I know? You got to think about, is it worth it to cut the baby in half? Scripturally, biblically. Is my conviction, is my opinion, is my preference, is it worth it to sink this whole ship, to sink this marriage, to end this friendship, to destroy this church? Is it worth it? Because Solomon knew that a mother, even if she was wrong, even if it meant that someone would take her baby, 
She knew that the baby's life was worth that. So the question really is, how much is the church worth to you? Or your marriage, or your friendships, or your family, or your brother, whatever. How much is it worth to you? Even Martin Luther, he didn't want to destroy the Catholic Church at first. He wanted to reform it. It wasn't a revolution. It wasn't a rebellion. It was a reformation in his mind. Splitting was the last option. See, these things are important. If churches are always fighting, we're never going to be obedient to the Great Commission. The world's going to look at us and say, I don't want that. If all our marriages are falling apart, how's that going to help our kids? If our friendships fall apart, what kind of example is that to the people around us? What kind of life are we going to have when we're old and we have no relationships? What did Jesus say? A house divided cannot stand. So you better count the cost. Is it worth it knocking this thing over? Fools don't get this. They don't get that when you embrace conflict, when you fail to recognize the waste of quarreling, that everyone loses in the end. It is a high, high, almost infinite cost. So you better be ready. It better be worth it to pay that cost. Conflict might be necessary, but if conflict itself is what defines you, then you've already lost and you drag down everyone else with you. So what do we do? Simple. Cease from strife as much as you can. It's not easy, but it is simple. Whoever started it, you seek to end it. How? There's wisdom for this. In the Proverbs, Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If you can overlook it, overlook it. Even if they're real offenses, even if they actually wronged you and sinned against you, if you can overlook it, it's glorious to overlook it. If you can't overlook it, bring it up in love. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. If you feel like, I just got to say something, don't lie. Okay, speak the truth, but say it in a loving way. Put yourself uh, second. Put yourself second after that person. Do it for them, for their good. Do it for the relationship's good. Say, look, you know, I know that we're having this conflict, and I feel like this is getting in the way of our relationship. We got to talk about it. Speak the truth, but in love. And you say, this is hard. Yeah, it is hard. And that's why we need help. And again, back to Buzz and Sheldon. Buzz and Sheldon needed help. So Jonathan decided to intervene. He's like, at this rate, they're never going to talk. They're going to die like this. So I'm going to call Uncle Sheldon, and I'm going to arrange a visit. That's what he did. He called him. He said, I'm going to bring my dad, and we want to come visit you. And he told his dad, hey, we're going to go down to Florida uh, they got a hotel room. He set it all up for them, and they went down. And uh, the interesting thing is, they're Jewish, um, and he just felt this conviction on the Day of Atonement. He was like, you know, we got to reconcile. So he gets his father to Florida. He calls his uncle, uh, and he says, we're coming over this morning, and they head over. And at first, it's awkward, but it seems like, okay. Right, they haven't seen each other really in a long time, but they're talking about their bad health and, you know, sports and random stuff. But it's definitely not going well. Okay, they haven't reconciled. They haven't talked about why they haven't talked in 20 years. So Jonathan could see that, you know, it's dragging on, but nothing's happening. They start even start annoying each other then. They start bickering. And he's like, I got to intervene even more. So what does he do? He says, tell us about that time that grandma took you, Sheldon. He just rips the Band-Aid off. Like the most painful memory in their family's history. He just asked about it. They're like, man, Sheldon's like, what's wrong with your son, you know? Like, what's wrong with this kid? He's like 35 years old. What's wrong with this guy? 
But he says, there's no time. Go for broke. I got to do it. I'm just going to ask. See, people don't want to talk about the things they don't want to talk about. And yet those are the things that we need to talk about. And thankfully, Buzz and Sheldon had help. I mean, I'll tell you at the very end what happened. But thankfully, they they had help. And you might be thinking, I need help. I need like a nephew who's going to come and force me to do this if it's ever going to happen because I can't do it on my own. I need someone who could bring reconciliation for me and my old best buddy or for me and my sister or my old group of friends or for me and my parents or my kids, whatever. But don't you see, if you're a Christian, that you do. Not Buzz's son, and you know where this is going, but God's own son. It's Christianity 101. The Bible says that we, by nature, are enemies of God. We have strife with him. We are his enemies through no fault of his own. Our sin offends him. We rebelled against him, and yet what did he do? He left his glory. He left his throne in heaven for a different one. The glory of forgiveness, of being able to overlook offenses, not to sweep them under the rug, but to pay for them by his own blood. Jesus Christ lived the life we can never live, and he died the death we deserve, even though we wronged him. He paid the price for reconciliation. He was the first mover. He was the one who stepped out in love. God showed us grace. And this is the message of Christianity, the beating heart of our faith. Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And in doing so, he made a way for us to also be reconciled with others. Because we know what it means for sins to be forgiven. Are we Christians or not? If we are, then we know. Jesus already took that first step. So Christian, it's more than just being wise or not. Are we Christians or not? Have we been forgiven or not? Have we been shown grace or not? How can we not do the same? Ending strife is one of the hardest things in the universe. Thank God that he's the one who did it. We'll close here. So you're wondering how it ended Jonathan brought up that old story of grandma. The tension filled the room, and Buzz obviously did not want to talk about it. It's the most painful memory of his life. But Sheldon started talking first. And the crazy thing is, to Buzz, it had always been definitive proof that mom always loved you more, that you were the favorite, that you were the golden child, that I was in your shadow, so why do you treat me so bad? But Sheldon started going off about it, and his recollection was completely different. He was like, you remember how dad was? You know, dad was so abusive. And he's like, yeah, I do. He's like, dad was always like beating me up. You remember? He's like, mom just took me away because I was getting beat up. And Buzz, in that moment, he, he had never thought about that, even though he knew, kind of. Like, it just didn't click for him. He had never thought that maybe that was why mom had taken Sheldon away. It wasn't because Sheldon was mom's favorite. Maybe he was. But Buzz had always been dad's favorite his whole life. See, the thing is, Buzz didn't realize that maybe he could have been wrong. He didn't realize that maybe it wasn't Sheldon's fault. And he didn't realize that even if it was Sheldon's fault, even if he did some of these things, it didn't really matter as much. Something changed in them. Because when they left, Sheldon walked them outside. He said, when are you going to leave Canada? That place is terrible. That's what he said, not me. There's a house for sale down the street. You should move down. I mean, that's all it was. They didn't, like, hug or anything. They just said, you should move down. You know, it was reconciliation. 
And Jonathan said when his dad sat in the car, he said, Johnny, I feel so different. I just feel so different. This is taking a lot on my shoulders. And that's it. See, all of us, we have different conflicts in our lives. The temptation is to say, oh man, this proverb is challenging. And then go home and not pick up the phone. To not say sorry. To focus on the 99% that they did wrong and not on the 1% that maybe we contributed to it. It's tempting for us, I think, to listen to this and be like, oh, that was kind of convicting. And then to go home and not deal with some of these open wounds, some of this strife. We all have different conflicts for different reasons. You'll need wisdom in dealing with them. You might need to forgive. You might, you might need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe it was a big misunderstanding. Maybe you weren't seeing it right. Whatever it is, maybe you need to talk. Maybe you need to stop talking. Whatever it is, here's what the Bible is offering you. Something like what Buzz got, but better. You can feel different. I guarantee you, if you plan for peace right now and you carry out that plan by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, then you can have a joy that you don't have right now. You can feel the weight lifted off. You can seize from strife. So friend here, don't be a fool. I preach to myself, don't be a fool. Make that call today. Work it out tomorrow morning and experience that glory. Will you pray with me? Will you pray with me? I encourage you right now to spend some time in silent prayer before God, just you and the Lord. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows the situation of your life. And just ask him for help, for grace and, and for wisdom and the courage even to step forward. <clears throat> and after you do that, I'll pray for us. Father, we come before you this afternoon. And we think of your son who is full of grace and truth. And I pray, God, that you would help us as your people to have both. To be people who overlook offenses and yet people who stand on the solid foundation of your word. God, it's not easy. So we ask for help. In fact, it's impossible but we know that by you, all things are possible. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for myself. God, I ask that you would help us to pursue peace in our lives. God, help us to hold on to the truths of your word. Help us to know that it's better. Deep down in our hearts, help us to know that it's better to have peace with people And however much it depends upon us, God, I pray that by your spirit, by your strength that you supply, that we would pursue that peace. And God, I pray, God, for your grace. I pray that when we do talk to these people, or when we do let certain things go, or when we have difficult conversations, God, I pray for your favor. God, I pray that reconciliation will happen. And I pray, God, that we will experience, that we would experience the joy that is possible when there is peace. God, help us to not be mere hearers of your word, but
but help us to be doers. We lift this time up to you. We give ourselves to you. Help us to not leave this place unchanged. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.